Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. I think it might be more, actually, than a game. Here's what John said in 1 John chapter 5. Uh, by the way, if you're following along with sermon notes, uh, we invite you to do that. Does anyone need sermon notes before we kind of get her rolling? Just slip up your hand, our shows will get you one. And, of course, it's always somebody right in the front row. Thank you. <laughs> Good worship team. So here's what John wrote. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. Hmm. So how can someone know that they have eternal life? Well, that verse is a pretty good indication, right? In fact, John, one of the purposes in writing this book, as we started with in the beginning, was that people might know concretely that they know God. So let's expand that thought just for a moment. Where's the proof that we can know that we know that we have eternal life? Where's the proof? And how do I know that I'm not this person? Jesus mentioned this person in the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew's Gospel. And he said this, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On Judgment Day, many, uh, many, uh, that is the word many, will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. I never knew you. Get away from me. Get out of here. Sobering verses, aren't they? Now John writes that we might know that we have eternal life, and Jesus says many will stand before him on that day, and he will say to them, many will say, Lord, Lord, yeah, Lord Jesus, didn't we go to church and sing to you and give you all this stuff for you? I never knew you. Never knew you. John says, I write this so that you might know that you have eternal life. Hmm. Hmm. Jesus said in that same passage, Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. You can identify people's faith by their actions. Hmm. So what actions is he talking about that actually prove the fact that we are in God's family? What are the actions? Hmm. What are the actions that actually prove that we know God? Here's what John said in our passage for today, 1 John chapter 3. Here's how you can tell the difference between who is a child of God and who belongs to Satan. Uh, those are the only two teams, by the way. All right, you know, God's team or Satan's team. There's no kind of in-between teams here. Whoever is living a life of sin and doesn't love his brother shows that he is not in God's family. A simple test. It's a simple test so that we can know that we know 
that we're not one of those people that will stand before the Lord one day, the many who will stand before him and say, hear him say, I never knew you. Oh, boy. So prove it. Prove it. How do we prove it? What actions prove that we are a member, a part of God's family? John says it's a simple test. Living a sin-free life and loving my brother. Sounds kind of simple, right? And it's supposed to be simple. It's supposed to be simple. But let's look at what this means. I think it's important we find uh, common ground using a common language so we're all reading off the same script and understanding the way that words are used. So let's go back to this prove-it formula, living a sin-free life. Now, the question is, what is sin? What is sin? Now, we use that word quite regularly in the church and in Christendom, but it still remains an important word to define, because sometimes we muddy the waters just a bit. Sin, what is it? Well, dictionary would say this, sin, a transgression of divine law. That is absolutely correct, by the way. John would agree with that. In fact, he writes it in our chapter for today, John, 1 John 3. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. There are only two camps that you can be in. You are either a law abider or you are a law breaker. That's where we are. You're in one camp or the other. We're either a law abider or a law breaker. Makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, so track with me here. Now, the root meaning of the word, hamartia, in the original language, means to miss the mark. It's a, it's a very basic, basic word found in the New Testament, but literally it means miss the mark, and uh, the picture is archery, and there's a target set up there, and we draw back on the bow and release it, and we never quite come to the point where we're hitting anywhere near the target. It's always falling short. We're missing the mark, Right? And so Paul would say in Romans 3.23, what would he say there? For all have sinned and do what? Oh, rats, it's up there. Okay, fall short of the glory of God. That's right. So we're all falling short of the glory of God. And so sin then has separated us from God. And for many, we want to reconnect with God. And so we make these attempts to try to have a relationship with God. That's called religion, us working our way back into God's favor, back into God's good graces. doesn't work, right? That's religion. So being separated from God, he says, you can't make it. There's no way. So I'm going to take care of this problem for you. And what did he do? He sent his son. Is that not the essence of what Christmas is all about? God sending his son for us to do which we couldn't do for ourselves. And so as we look at this word, uh, the root meaning, meaning miss the mark. Now, sin includes our thoughts. Does God know what you're thinking? All the time. Certainly he does. Scripture makes that clear. Jesus said, again in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman, even as a thought, A lustful thought has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, just thoughts are sin. Actions are sin, right? Got the Ten Commandments. You'll do this, you'll not do that. Pretty clear. These are directives in Scripture, right? 
So we know that our thoughts can be sinful, our actions can be sinful, and even our inaction is sinful. James wrote, remember, it is sin to miss the mark, to know what you ought to do and then not do it. That ever happened to you? You know the good you were supposed to do, but you didn't do it. That's as sinful as doing or thinking the wrong thing. Sometimes we categorize these things. That's not so bad. Just because I didn't do that. uh, Yeah, it's all sin. It all makes us lawbreakers, right? So the bottom line is this. All have sinned. We've all missed the mark. Okay? So John begins here. And he says, all right, if you're going to prove it, live a sin-free life. Now, seated among us are some astute minds. Tremendous theologians, great thinkers. So would you kindly explain these verses in 1 John to me? If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. John concurs that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But then he goes on and he writes in our chapter for today, anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. Now, didn't he just say, if we say we don't have sin, we're basically a liar. But now he's saying anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Anyone here not sin? Do you keep on sinning? Ah. And then he adds this, just to muddy the waters more. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them, so they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. Are you really a child of God when you are sitting there saying you keep on sinning? All right, go ahead. Very astute theological minds, explain this to me. How can John say, on one hand, If you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. On the other hand, if you do sin, you don't really know God or understand Him. Huh? Again, this is a very simple book. So, somebody take a crack at that. Just go ahead. We don't want to sin, but sometimes our flesh still does. That, everything you said is absolutely true. Does it resolve this tension, though? When you know that your identity is found in Christ, rather than in the circumstances around the world, or around me, or my husband, or my kids, but only if I find my identity in Christ. Okay, let me ask you this, Judy. Do you sin? Yeah. Do you keep on sin? Try not to. No, no, I just answered oh, yeah. the question. I still oh, do. You still sin? Yes. But what does that verse say? If you keep on sinning, you really don't know God or understand who He is. Are you wrestling with the same sins that you did even before you were a Christian? Thank you. Thank you, though. 
you're wrestling with. Okay, somebody else. We don't run from the tension of Scripture. It's there for a reason. Why would John do this? It would appear that John is he's highlighting an act of their will and, a, and a, an allegiance that's going to form over time. Imperfect, obviously, at first, but we, we hear very much uh, that your sin is exposed and they don't make excuses for it. So there's a, a reaching, uh, a leaning into uh, what, what God's will for our life would be. Good. Both of you are correct in what you're saying, right? Did you sin before you came to Christ? Do you sin after you come to Christ? Is there a difference between the way you handle the sin before you came to Christ as opposed to after? Yes. A big difference. There's a big difference. All right? Okay, good. I just want to stimulate your thinking here uh, because these are issues in Scripture that often can trip us up. Right? So let me take a shot at it. Now, the Bible says we are dead to sin. How many of you in here who are Jesus followers are dead to sin? Can you raise your hand? Yeah, you are dead to sin. Well, what does that mean? Okay, how many of you that raised your hand still sin? All of you, all of you that said you are dead to sin still sin, right? Okay, I'm just making sure we're all on the same page here. Hmm. So what do we do with this? The Bible says we're dead to sin. Paul put it like this. You also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Dead to the power of sin. Now, let me ask you this. Is sin dead? (laughs) Good. Yeah, I'm setting you up. Uh, Is sin dead? No, of course not. Sin is not dead. Sin is all around you. It's in your brain. It's in your body. We're surrounded by it as we journey through this world, correct? Sin is not dead, but when we walk with Jesus, we have a choice to be dead to it. Follow me here. Anybody know who Stevie Wonder is? Okay. Is he blind? Yeah, is he blind? Yeah. Now, Stevie Wonder has performed on Broadway. Broadway, with all of its lights and colors. Is Stevie Wonder dead to light and color? Even though it's all around him? Correct. It's just like a deaf woman on the 4th of July. Can she hear the fireworks? Sound exists, but not for her. It's all around her, but she's dead to it. Okay? Now, in the same way, for the one who follows Jesus, his death and resurrection free us from the power of sin. Hmm. Certainly, sin still exists, but sin does not exist. The power of sin does not exist for the believer when he or she chooses to abide, remain, continue in Jesus. So now, sin becomes a matter of choice. You see, before the cross, we had no other choice but to sin. That's all we were capable of doing, is sinning. Right? Okay? But after Christ comes into our life, we are freed then from the power, the control of sin, and every time we do sin, it's a choice that we've made. 
Not because we have to, but we chose to do that. And now we have these two conflicting natures going to war within each of us. So we can be dead to sin. In fact, the Bible says we must, it's a command, to be dead to sin. Now, it never says we're going to be sin-free. That's impossible until we're in glory. Let's press on. Paul put it like this. Sin is no longer our master. I come back to Romans 6 again and again and again. Sin is no longer our master. Before the cross, sin was our master. Couldn't help but do anything but sin. After the cross, sin is no longer our master. Who is our master? Jesus. Jesus is our master. And now sin looks much different than it did before the cross. Now, here's what John said in our chapter. You know that Jesus came to take away our sins and there is no sin in him. Can you say amen to that? Okay. And he went on to say, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. I love that. I love that. I come back to this verse again and again and again. This is why Jesus came in John's mind. This one who had seen him and touched him and grabbed him, hurt him, loved on him, was loved by him. He came to destroy the devil's work. That is the meaning of Christmas. Not some hokey, cheesy card that says peace on earth. He came for an act of violence. Do not think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, he said. I'm going to divide. And I'm going after the evil one. And I'm going to cut him off. And I'm going to set you free. That's the essence of Christmas, is it not? Certainly. Certainly. And so now, for us, the power and the control of sin are an act of the will. I can choose not to sin, right? Or I can choose to sin. So what's really happening here? What's really happening here? Jesus came to bring us freedom. He conquered sin and death for us. And now we have a choice. How will we choose to live? Is it possible? Yeah, it's possible to be more and more like Jesus every day. To sin less and less and less. To be freed from that thing that has been plaguing you for decades. Is his power absolute? He just sang it. He's the great I am. He can do anything he wants. Is that too hard for him? Not when we choose. Not when we choose. And so the Son of God came to destroy the devil's works. And I'm saying, if you know that, if you understand that, then how about we live it? Prove it. Prove it. Here's what David Crowder would say about all this.
Are you free? Amen. I trust that you are. If you're not, loose the chains on your soul. Jesus waits to bring that kind of freedom. Prove it. Live freely through the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Now, the war is over. The war was won at the cross. It was confirmed by the empty tomb when Christ was raised from the dead. But the battle goes on. The battle goes on. It goes on within each of us. But sin will no longer be our master in Christ. There is freedom. There is freedom. But that's only the first half of what John talks about. He goes on to say that if we're going to prove it, it's a simple test. Live a sin-free life and love those around you. Love those around you. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. If someone has enough money to live well, here's the practical application, and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is it's not... Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth so we will be confident when we stand before God. You want to prove it? Prove that you're part of God's family. Love is what it's about. Very simple. 1 John 3.14, the NIV goes like this. How we know... We have passed from life to death. How do we know? Because we got all the answers right on the doctrine test? No, 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 no. That doesn't work that way. When we love our brothers. So let's keep it simple, shall we? The simplest description of God in Scripture and God's own description of himself, we'll look at in a little more depth, is found in 1 John 4, 16. God is love. God is love. Now, uh, Scripture memory has kind of fallen out of fashion today. Uh, we don't do a lot of that, sadly. But let's try that this morning, shall we? So, uh, let's all memorize John four sixteen together, shall we? Okay, this one's pretty easy. So, what we're going to do is say the reference and then the verse. Right? So, here we go. 1 John four sixteen. Good, good. Very simple, right? God is love. Do you know this love of God? Is He loving on you right now? He is love, right? Anyone can claim to be a Christian, or Jesus' father, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Anyone can claim that. Anyone can sound spiritual. They can look spiritual. You can carry a big Bible in here. Uh, You can hang around church. You can listen to uh, preaching uh, podcasts and Christian music and look uh, and sound the part, but the Bible teaches the acid test of the genuineness of a person's faith is always love. It is always love. It is unquestionably the supreme value of Christianity that sets us apart from every other world religion. It is based on love. God's love for you and for me. For God so loved the world, what did He do? That's what He did. That's what sets Christianity apart. 
It's a fundamental measuring rod against which our claim to faith will one day be assessed when we stand before the Lord and every person will stand before the Lord and give an account of his life. And the question will be, did you love? Did you love? So if the fruit of love is growing in your life and mine, odds are our claim to be a part of God's family are real. It's the real deal. Jesus said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. It will prove to the world. John's test again. Live a life free from sin. Love others. But if our life lacks love, if we have little or no compassion for people, chances are our faith might actually be fiction. And we will be in that multitude of people the many who will hear on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I go to church? Didn't I do this and that? Chances are we're really only a superficially religious person. Jesus doesn't have a lot of tolerance for religious people whom God doesn't even recognize yet as his son or daughter because we've not understood this message of love. And the forgiveness that comes from this act of love on the cross for you and for me. Now hear me out. You don't have to be a loving person to gain entrance into God's family. True? You do not have to be a loving person to gain entrance in God's family. fact of the matter is, you can be a self-centered, self-absorbed, narcissistic creep and still be welcomed into the kingdom of God. How do I know? Because I was one. And he welcomed me. He welcomed me. Entrance into this Jesus following comes by repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. That is it. Period. Done. Pretty simple. That's how we get in. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued, will be saved. From what? From our sin. Because he came to destroy the works of the devil. It's through repentance and faith in Christ alone. But the Bible says that proof positive that we're actually a part of God's family, redeemed, if we can use that word, is tied to the concrete evidence that our capacity to love is increasing. Our capacity to love is increasing. Now, as a side note, let me just say that loving like this is never easy. It is never easy to do, to love the way that Jesus loved us. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you a little story. Uh, Last month I went to uh, Prayer Walk, the gateway community, kind of the epicenter of some of the bad stuff that happens in Sheboygan. And from time to time I go and I prayer walk through those neighborhoods. So I was driving down there, and I was at the corner of Erie and 14th. Walgreens, CVS, Momo, okay, everybody, everybody goes through that intersection, right? So I'm pulling around, and I turn, and there's a woman going from Burger King to Walgreens, a well-dressed elderly woman, and she has two bags, she trips on the median and does a facial right in the road, right in my lane, right? So I come up, put on the hazard lights, jump out. I run to her, ask her, you okay? Can you get up? Yeah, cars are just come so fast. I think I can get up. So I help her up, right? 
and, and I start crossing the road. Now, you know how traffic is there. And I get her on the sidewalk. Another woman stops her car, and she gets on the other side. And we take her down. There's somebody there at Walgreens. What happened to you? And, and knew her, uh, took her over there. And uh, uh, I said, man... God's angels watching over. She says, oh, thank you so much. I just want to, you know, the whole incident probably took two minutes, right? Probably took two minutes. What joy to be able to express love in action, right? So I go back to my car, which is sitting on Erie, going up the hill, right? And two cars back, this guy has his window down, he lets out this stream of profanity at me. He's just like, I mean, he's screaming it, right? And so I'm just looking at him, and I said, I just stopped to help her. The only alternative I had was to run her over. It's just like, duh, duh. So he, now the traffic's moving because she's done. It took less than two minutes. He pulls beside my car. He's right in my face. He's just cursing at me, right? Now, I want you to know that your pastor is not completely sanctified. <laughs> uh, Dustin, could you close your ears just for a moment? <laughs> Oh, Pete's here too. Anybody else in law enforcement, uh, please uh, just, okay, ignore this part. Yeah, okay. So, he zooms off. I pop in my car and I'm chasing him. I'm just being honest, okay? I'm just being honest. In that moment, my sense just, this doesn't happen often, but man, this just tripped my trigger. That just absolutely tripped my trigger. So I'm chasing him, right? And he knows that I'm coming after him. And my Honda is quite fast, right? I didn't know what I was going to do. Make a citizen's arrest or... uh... No, okay. I was going to introduce him to my friend Chris Flores. Uh, That's what I was thinking about doing. Uh, But maybe we'd handle it some other way, right? So I'm chasing him. He sees that I'm chasing him. So at the stoplight at Magic Car Wash, he burst through, and I came to my senses, and I gave up the chase. I'm just here to say, even when we try to do loving things, which are often hard things to do, that doesn't mean we're going to get a pat on the back and a well done. Loving is difficult. So John would write here in 1 John chapter 3, so don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. If we're going to be God's instruments of love, you're not going to win popularity contests. Because look what they did with the embodiment of love. They tacked him to a cross. But it's still the right thing to do. It's still the right thing to do. Thank you for praying for me. I need it, all right? (laughs) So let me ask the obvious question. How much concrete evidence of an increased capacity for love is there in my life, in your life today? What does the evidence show? 
Something better happened after we encountered the cross to give evidence that the cross has really had an impact and took effect in our lives. And you know what it is. The Bible says that our, our capacity to love must continue to increase. It must continue to rise. Is it? Here's the truth about lots of people. Uh, we're just kind of cruising along. We say we've become a Christian, a Jesus follower. We've encountered the cross. But the pattern of love in our lives after the cross kind of remains the same. What's wrong with this picture? If the cross has done its work in us, our capacity to love will be ever increasing. It must be, as we are conformed to the image of Jesus, who of course is love. The fundamental point I'm making here, friends, is that unless the trajectory of our love capacity goes up after we encounter the cross, and when do we, when's the last time you encountered the cross? And I'm not going back to the point where you prayed your sinner's prayer or did something like that. Nothing wrong with that. But Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, daily, and follow me. And so as I encounter the cross of Christ, I'm not going back to the point where I I stepped into the Christian faith. I'm going back to yesterday and, in fact, today when I encounter the cross. And that's the only way that my capacity to love can continually increase is when I embrace the cross every day moment by moment hour by hour in my life i need you oh i need you every hour i need you lord i can't do this on my own otherwise i'm going to be chasing people around in sheboygan (laughs) oh my goodness unless the trajectory of our love capacity is increasing. Increasing. We may not be a Christian at all or a comatose Christian at best. There's just no easy way to say this. And so my call is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to prove it? That we're a part of God's family. I go back to where we started to wrap this up. Here's how you can tell the difference between who is a child of God and who belongs to Satan. Whoever is living a life of sin and doesn't love his brother shows that he's not in God's family. A simple test. It's a simple, simple test. Now, let's flip that thing on its ear and frame it in the positive. Whoever is living a life free from the control and the power of sin. That's our heart's desire, to live a life free from the power and the control of sin and loving others around that person that shows that he's in God's family. And I trust that's you today. If not, we want to talk to you about that. Being a part of God's family. Do you know that you know? And so now, to conclude our service, we come to the table. And we want to take a a few minutes to prepare our hearts, because that's what the Bible says we must do. We must examine ourselves. And the self-examination spiritually is not to exclude us from the table. The Bible says we shouldn't come in an unworthy manner. In fact, it's better not to take communion than it is if we're not right with God. But this is a call to make it right with God, which we can do right now. Lord, forgive me. 
Lord, give me the strength to turn from this, to turn toward you. Lord, I need you. That's all he's asking of us. Not perfection. There's nobody here. But to be free from the power and the control of sin and to love others the way that he's loved us. And so this is a call to make our hearts right and ready to receive and acknowledge what Jesus has done for us. This one who died to bring us freedom. This one who loved us in our most unloveliest moments waits with open arms. It says, come. Come. So let's take just a moment. I'm going to ask those who serve if you kindly come up and we are just going to take a moment of silence, prepare our hearts, examine, listen to what God is saying to us, respond to what God is saying. And when the Holy Spirit speaks, he put his, puts his finger right on that thing, that relationship, that thought, that attitude. He puts his finger right on it and says, give it to me, give it to me. Let it go. Find the freedom, the healing, the wholeness that he offers. Let's just take a moment so we might hear what Jesus is saying. Father, thank you. For the simplicity of your love. So that even a child can grasp it. Thank you for the sacrifice that canceled the debt of sin that was in our account. And the forgiveness and love and wholeness that was poured into us 
to be a part of the family of God through what Jesus has done for us. He breaks the power of canceled sin. Father, as we wrestle here day by day, thank you that we can come again and find forgiveness and the slate is wiped clean. And there's a new start, a fresh beginning, over and over again, how faithful you are, O Lord. And so we offer up those things that you've pointed out to us in this moment. We say, Lord, here they are. Here they are. It's not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit that change will come. And I surrender again to you, Lord Jesus. And I deny myself and I take up my cross and I follow Jesus wherever that leads. So, Father, touch us again. Come, Holy Spirit. Breathe life into each searching, hungering soul. And might this be a celebration of what you've done. Praise God. We're free. We're free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Friends, our servers will come. And we are going to serve both elements together. It's a little different. And you may be thinking, how can I hold on to the bread and pass the tray at the same time? You'll figure it out. (laughs) You'll figure it out. It'll work. But we remember the broken body of our Lord Jesus represented by the bread. And the cup represents what? His blood. And what does blood do for you? Cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Ah, it's great news, isn't it? And so please wait till all have been served and then we'll partake together in the Lord's goodness.